After returning to the book of Ephesians last week and seeing the emphasis that Paul places on what actually looks to be a part of living in community and what it looks like to live in community and what the community of believers should look like and particularly the emphasis that he places there in Ephesians chapter 5, I decided I would spend some time trying to commit to words, maybe some way to succinctly and simply uh, just explain what is so special about the church. In doing so, I haven't been fruitful. I consider that perhaps that was actually Paul's attempt or original attempt as he sat down to write this letter to the book to the uh, church in Ephesus, that perhaps even Paul contended to write down simply and succinctly what makes the church so special. And in so doing, he wrote these five chapters. This community that has no medium for fostering relationships other than the shared identity that we have in Christ comes together and defies the cultural norm. Cultural barriers are broken down. This community of fallen and sinful people come together and persevere through hardship, misunderstanding, and Yes, even conflict, relational barriers are broken down. This community of finite humans commune with a divine and supernatural God. Metaphysical barriers are broken down. There isn't a succinct way to land what makes the church as special as it is unless a person has allowed themselves to experience it. Often we rob ourselves of the experience of Christian community just by the way that we live our lives. By avoiding commitment to our church and to the members that are there, by avoiding awkwardness and open the, op- the awkwardness of opening our homes, by avoiding the vulnerability of opening up ourselves. I contend this morning... That it is in fact through our commitment, awkwardness, and vulnerability that we are given the greatest insight into what makes the church so special. Experiencing the church does not come from showing up when the doors are open. It comes about by throwing ourselves into the church as a lifestyle. I'm a churchman, not because I'm a pastor or because I surrendered to the ministry or even because I've been saved and baptized and I come to church. No, I am a churchman because I've been adopted into this family. I have a familial obligation as a brother, as a son, as a father. I do church when I wake up in the morning and I pray over the list of those that I know need prayer. I do church when I go shopping and I purchase double ingredients for lasagna so that I can put an extra one in the freezer for somebody when they need it. I do church as a way of life. I do church because I am a member of God's family. Ironically, I did not grow in my commitment to being a churchman and learn to be awkward or vulnerable Instead, through awkwardness and vulnerability, I have been encouraged to be a churchman. The church testifies unto itself through the power of God at work within it. 
This morning, as we continue in Ephesians, looking at chapter 5, verse 11, Paul continues to exhort the Ephesian church to holy living. Now, not just in how they speak with one another, but in how they walk alongside one another. This is crucial as we aim to move forward where Paul dives into specific relationships that take place in our communities, how we walk with one another, how we're parents, how we, um, we're husbands and wives, how we're employers and employees. Our culture has embraced what could very easily be called a consumeristic uh, way of living. Everything that we do has some tangible value that we trade for. My time is traded for spending time in church or or whatever else comes with that. Paul, I think, clearly exhorts the church in Ephesus and even the church today to avoid such consumeristic tendencies. We see people come together and to fabricate community on their own many times in our world. And when they try to do this, it never reflects the real kingdom of God, even in churches. We see people come together and identify passions and hobbies as their means of spending time together rather than the sole thing that should unify us, which is our identity in Christ. The issue of holiness being set apart is difficult. The truth is we would rather abuse God's grace than offend someone by telling them that they should live differently than the world. But our holiness is at the core of what it means to walk in God's community. Peter wrote, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We like to say that God meets all of us wherever we are at. And it's true. God does. He meets the most depraved sinner in his darkest hour. He reaches the most fallen of creation in his lowest pit of despair. But let's be clear. God never intended anyone to stay where they're at. That's not his plan for us. I invite you to turn to our text this morning. We will pray, and then I will read out loud, and I invite you to read along with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this morning, for the time that we have to come together and to be your people, to gather together in your name, to be identified with one another, not as strangers sitting in pews or alongside one another, but God, as your family, God, as we consider the implications of your text, what it means to know who we were in our old self, to no longer identify as that, but to see ourselves as a new creation, to recognize that that new creation is us in you, to live by the power of you in us. God, let us realize that your plan for the church is bigger than any individual, than any person, but your plan for the church is for a community of believers, a society of those who would seek your word and your will and who would be exhorting one another 
to live in a way that glorifies you. God, as we turn to your word this morning to consider what you have written, open the eyes of our heart that we might behold the awesome truth contained in your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, I will read through verse 17. The Bible says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. For our study this morning, I've divided the text into two sections, and so it makes it really simple if you're trying to take notes. The first section is simply, what does it mean to walk in light? And the second section is, what does it mean to walk in wisdom? We're exhorted in the text to do both. First, we'll look at what it means to walk in light. The first illustration that Paul uses in the text this morning is that contrast between darkness and light, an idea that's not unique to Paul's writing, but we see it echoed by the Apostle John and elsewhere, and even Jesus in the New Testament. This isn't just a picture, though, of what is right and what is wrong, what is wretched and what is righteous. This is a picture of what is done in secret and what is hidden. I'm sorry, what is hidden and what is done with openness and transparency. You see, Christians aren't just exhorted to walk righteously through the power of Christ, but to walk openly with each other. Transparency in our lives is simply one of the most countercultural concepts in our American way of living. This would have been true to the uh, believers that Paul was writing to in Ephesus, and it's true for people in our day. I would even say maybe our American culture has blown this up or inflated it or made it something even bigger than it actually is. Consider the conversations that we have with one another, the topics that are private matters that we aren't going to discuss, those things that we're not just quite comfortable sharing because, well, we contend that that's our business, and we need to keep it to ourselves. The sort of resistance to living by the light is a resistance to actually living the way that God calls us to live. I think it's important, before we make too much momentum in this passage this morning, to consider that our American culture has conditioned us to view transparency as something to be avoided. In fact, even our American church culture has conditioned us when we read the Bible to insert our cultural norms into the Bible so that we can understand it. There's a fallacy there. We are never 
supposed to insert what is culturally comfortable for us into God's Word so that we can understand what is being written. Rather, we should always look at God's Word as the authority and allow it to speak into our lives regardless of culture, regardless of what makes us comfortable. Let's be clear. The Bible calls us to live uncomfortable lives. It pushes barriers. It breaks down barriers. That's actually something to be thankful for when we consider the fact that the greatest barrier of all, our relationship with God, has been made possible through this uncomfortable breaking of barriers. Brett McCracken writes that when a Christian church is comfortable and cultural, she tends to be weak. When she is uncomfortable and countercultural, she tends to be strong, contending that the strength of Christian community to attract the world around it by its differentness hinges on our ability to live as a Christian society rather than a normative culture who calls ourselves Christians. Paul's writing, he's asking believers in Ephesus to live by the light, to expose that which is in darkness, to live in openness and transparency. This isn't just a call to holiness, it's a call to openness. Being open with one another and transparent with one another, sharing the burdens of our lives with one another. This is an uncomfortable topic. If we're not careful, we'll look at this text and we'll quickly say, yes, I know I should live righteously and I should do what God's word says and I should be perfect. And the application of that is I'm going to hide everything that is not righteous and perfect in my life from the people that I've been called into community with. I'm going to conceal all of my secrets and I'm going to make sure none of those church people know about my real life. That's not what Paul's writing. He's already written about living righteously. He's already written about what it means to be pure, the things that shouldn't be a part of our speech. He's already written about these kinds of things that come across as an effect of being saved and being a new creation. Now, he says that when you're walking with people, live in openness because Well, we'll get into the reasons, but one of them is it's going to encourage you to live more righteously whenever you rely on the people who are around you. Look at this. Light reveals what is the truth and what is not the truth through the word. The imagery of light used by Paul in the early church is not based off of our personal preferences or even our personal um, or even the personal preferences of leaders. Rather, it hinges on the absolute and authoritative, available to the people, word of God. The Bible is the light unto our feet, according to Psalm 119. For a reason, it is the declaration, the authoritative and the absolute definition of what is true and what is not. We should be careful then as Christians not to fit Christianity into our culture of privacy and routine schedules, but to embrace it as a description of our new life, allowing the word to speak into our lives instead of understanding the word through the world. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it, said Martin Lloyd-Jones.
Hmm. Light tells us what the truth is. It tells us right and wrong. It defines and gives us definitions. It gives us authority to be able to say that there is something that is a guidebook, that this isn't some relative abstract thing that people are trying to figure out or that we collectively agree on through some social contract. No, there is an authoritative basis for what is right and what is wrong. I'm not figuring out what's right and wrong. I'm being told what's right and wrong. The imagery of light used by Paul and the early church is not based off of our personal preferences. Light reveals what is the truth. Second, light reveals what it is to live transparently and openly. But how does the Bible do this? How does this truth revealed in the Word call us to live transparently? Am I pushing too hard on this? I don't believe so. Rather, I believe I've been pushed even further to understand what it means to live in transparency with our brothers and sisters in Christ by studying this text this week. We are called to walk in light and not in darkness. First, in accordance with the word. Secondly, in consistency with living in community with one another. See that the text calls us to expose what is in darkness. To expose what is in darkness. I I won't pretend for one moment that there is any saint walking in this earth that has not, or, or that has been perfectly sanctified to the point that they are without sin in their life. Let's not pretend for one moment that there's one person in our congregation, even me, who has spent so much time with God and is so committed to His Word that there's not one iota of rebellion inside of Him. People say they don't like the church because it's filled with hypocrites. Oh, it is. It absolutely is. The church is so filled with hypocrites, in fact, it's overrun. Overrun with hypocrites. Charles Spurgeon, somebody asked him, uh, or was talking about how even in his day that they didn't want to go to church because it was filled with just sinful people who talked about righteousness and what it meant to live according to God's word. And Spurgeon painted this picture of the perfect church. And he said, if I could find the perfect church, well, it would be better for me not to go there because as soon as I join, I'd ruin it. The church is filled with sinners. It's filled with people who aren't, aren't living perfectly. It's filled with people with secrets and things that they don't want others to know about. That's what being a church is. Paul's exhortation to live openly isn't one to uh, flaunt how failed we are or how much we have failed. Rather, it's an exhortation to live in transparency with one another that they might expose what is in darkness in our lives. That we might be a part of exposing what is in darkness in other people's lives. If you do a brief study of sin, and I don't mean trying to figure out what sin is or to define it, but you look at the, the tangible nature of it and how it affects people, even Christians, one of the most 
um, apparent facts that we look at is that whenever you are caught up in sin, you don't see it for yourself. This picture of light and darkness is such that whenever you are living in darkness, it's like walking around without the lights on. You can't even see the darkness. You need community. Do you see how necessary it is? You need someone else to shine the light on it for you to expose what it is. By living righteousness openly and consistently, darkness naturally has light shone upon it. We cannot accept a world that lives in contradiction to God's word to accept it as truth. A Christian does not need to perform an in-depth autopsy on the corpse of a world to show that it is rotting and that it is decaying and that there is death inside of it. One simply needs to turn on the light to see the corpse lying there. There's been an issue in... um, the past decade of the trend where we see more and more people no longer identifying themselves as Christians, more and more people no longer identifying themselves as churchmen or churchwomen, and uh, particularly among the millennial generation, there's this group that's now referring to themselves as the nuns. If If you read any of the demographic literature around this, they say that they are the nuns because For generation after generation, most people who weren't even Christian would say, I'm Christian, without hesitance. People that didn't go to church, people that weren't committed to a local body, that believed that there was no authority in their life, people who were just what we called culturally Christian. Well, there's been a shift away from that. Now generations grow up and they can uh, very comfortably, because it's no longer a part of the culture, say, I don't really identify with anything. And so we call them the nuns. When writing about this, Ed Stetzer says, Christianity isn't collapsing. It's being clarified. In response to the 2015 release of uh, Pew Research data that showed Christians the Christian share of the American population declined by almost 8 percentage points from 2007 to 2014. Stetzer points out that the surge in nuns is because nominal Christians are giving up the pretense of faith while convictional Christians are remaining committed. It's an interesting perspective on a move away from the church in our culture, One that I think is actually something to get excited about. Wait a second. Can we get excited that more people aren't identifying as Christian? I think we can. I think it's easier to talk to somebody that realizes they're not a Christian than it is to talk to somebody who thinks that they are and actually aren't. And for the church... I mean, just pull yourself out of the world for a second and think about what this means for the church. That means the church isn't filled with nominal Christians that don't know what the authority of Scripture is in their lives. These people who want to live in secrecy, who don't want to be open, who don't want to be transparent with brothers and sisters around them. This means that the church is being clarified, that the members of the church and the people that gather together on the Lord's day, who come together to sing praises to God, are genuinely worshiping because of 
there's genuine new life inside of them. Rather than seeing the fall of Christianity in the past two decades, I see the first real opportunity in my lifetime for the church to be a better reflection of what Christ has for us. Through the clarification from nominal Christianity, the testimony of true Christianity can again have a significant impact on the world around us. People have said time and time again, I don't want to go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. I say, yes, that's true. What makes it different? The light of the church has been dimmed by the infiltration of nominal Christians. It's had a a detrimental impact on the testimony of the local church. It's had an impact on the way that people perceive the truth of the gospel. Christians not wanting to live openly with one another because they're afraid of hurting somebody else's feelings has allowed darkness and corruption to be as much a part of the church's testimony as it is in the world's. Weak leadership. Pastors who have succumbed to not allowing anyone to have authority in their life have fallen and allowed the church to be a place of corruption. The move away from nominal Christianity is not a bad thing. I believe it's a God-given great thing. The church is a place for all those who would come to hear the word of God preached. It's not just a a place for proclaiming the word of God, but being the church is a way of living. Allowing people to speak into our lives, not just your pastor, but your brother or sister who sits in the pew with you. Not just your mother or father, but your friend who goes to class with you. Pray not for a massive resurgence in the church, but for a renewed faithfulness to living according to God's word. One of the components of light that is being drawn out by Paul with this illustration is not just that light is telling us what the truth is or that it's calling Christians to live transparently with one another, but that it is actually offering us life. Light is life-giving. This is a third component of living in the light. It is that it has an impact on our lives, that we can begin to, uh, as spring comes, tend our gardens. We know the necessity of light for the plants that we place. The plants need light to live, and so does the church. The church thrives whenever light surrounds us. It produces flourishing health. We may be tempted to run away from living openly with our brothers and sisters in Christ because it's countercultural, but more likely we do so because it's simply uncomfortable. To be a community of Jesus followers is to trade comfortable, me-centric existence for danger difficulty, and discomfort of all sorts. We should be careful to make sure that 
when we're encouraged by the Bible to live in transparency with one another, that we don't run away from that. There is no business of my life that has no place in the church. My whole life has a place in the church. And that should be true for all of us. Because light is life-giving. Now, as I talk about this, and we look at the encouragement that we have to live in openness with our brothers and sisters, one thing that we should be cautioned against is that there are some things that are better not talked about if we read the beginning of chapter 5 again, which we studied last week, so I won't do it now, but we, we see that um, there's kind of the knee-jerk reaction that some churches have had to this and even some Christian leaders to say that Living openly means that my sin should be flaunted and it should be flagrant and it should be dragged out in front of everyone and I should have no shame about it. The real caution is that we should not identify with our sin. We've, been, we've become too comfortable with our sin to the point that it is how we identify ourselves and even relate to others. Shouldn't we find connection over Christ rather than over our depravity? By focusing on brokenness as our proof of realness, have we made authenticity a higher calling than holiness? I'm not saying that I don't know that everyone's not perfect. But what I am saying, I think it's the same struggle that Paul had as he tried to write down what makes the church so special. He says in chapter 3, it's a manifold wisdom of God revealed. That we're called together in unity, he says in chapter 4. What makes the church so special? And I think about where he started before we got all the way here in the middle of chapter 5. You were fallen. You were depraved. You had no hope of salvation. You were dead. You were a corpse. There was no life inside of you. But you were called and you were adopted through Christ. You were given new life. You're identified one with Christ. And through this, not only one with Christ, but one with everyone who is one with Christ. And now you're a body Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul quotes from Isaiah chapter 60. The body of Christ doesn't exist as a bunch of individuals who have come together to cooperate and to do special things. We're not describing associational work whenever we talk about the body of the local church. When we talk about the church, we talk about a functioning body of Christ that is not just contributing, but cooperating with others. Not just exposing, but edifying others. Our identity is not with sin, it is with our righteousness. That's why Paul makes it such a point to declare what has been done in our new life, that we've been brought from death to life. And now, walk in life. Edifying one another, purifying one another, presenting each other wholly to one another. 
That is what it means to walk in light. Second, I said that we can look at our text as walking in wisdom. Look at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what is the will of the Lord. Understand what is the will of the Lord. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul writes that the days are evil. He wrote this to the church in Ephesus. Of course, we can say if the days were evil then, how much more evil are they now? And I don't say that to be um, uh, completely pessimistic, but I know it to be the truth. One safeguard against Uh, To each their own interpretations of Scripture is community. The authority of community, both in the present tense and across time and through tradition. It is the guardrail that keeps individuals from veering into heresy. Walking in wisdom is keeping close counsel, trusted wise counsel. In fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Think about the implications of that. Just for a second, what makes the church so special? A part of it is God's grace to us that in our current condition, we would be surrounded with believers who not only are encouraging us, who are reproving us through rebuke, who are clarifying our own lives and helping us to draw closer to God, who are making us more holy and helping to be a part of the process of sanctification by calling us to draw nearer to God. But it's by grace that we are able to do this for others. What makes the church so special that all these people from different backgrounds who have different interests and different things, who all of everything that would separate us in the, the, the world is set aside because there's one thing that unites us, not interests or hobbies or passions, but our identity with Christ. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. The the English word to walk circumspectly comes from two Latin words. To look around. To inspect with a circumference. Believers in Christ aren't just to keep an eye on their own walk, but on the walk of those that they've been called into a community with. That's why we have church covenants. That's why we gather together. That's why we share our lives with one another. Because if we don't do that, we're missing out on one of the greatest blessings of the church. In fact, what what Bonhoeffer would say is part of God's grace towards us in this life. We do this so that we can understand what is the will of God. Because God does have a will. One of my favorite Bible passages, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast goes on. This declaration of our salvation by 
grace through faith does not end there. And so many people stop at verse 9, but verse 10 is rich. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our call to live as Christians is not just for salvation. It is for sanctification, for the continued progressive salvation that comes apart by living in the will of God. And so Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that you are not just saved so that you can do whatever you want, so that you can abuse grace, but you are saved so that you can live according to God's will because when you were dead, there was no way that you could do that. This is magnificent. Surely the magnifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church because God has a will, not just for the church, but for you. His will is revealed through his word, Colossians 1, 9 and 10 say, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Christians should not be complacently stagnated in their knowledge of God's grace to simply stop there, but to push onward that they would be filled with the knowledge of God so that they would know what His will is. Second, God's will is revealed to us through peace in our hearts. Colossians 3.15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And finally, according to our circumstances, even Paul writes to the church in Rome, or not, sorry, not to the church, he writes to Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When we spend time talking about holiness or even spending time studying it, there's the temptation to uh, perceive this as um, simply legalism. Simply the, the church saying that there's a way to live your life and you need to conform and live your way, life that way. That is not what Paul is writing here. He's written a great treatise on what God's grace is and what it's accomplished for us and what it's even created for us. In fact, he's focused his attention on grace and he comes now to what it means to live in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ to reveal that living openly is a part of God's grace towards us. In fact, to say that grace foils legalism, but grace fuels righteousness. Living in God's grace, living in community with believers, pushes us on to something greater than we have now. In fact, it puts before us what God actually intends for us. It makes us holy. It sets us apart. It purifies us and cleanses us. I love the church so much. I've only ever been a member of two churches, this church and the church that I was at before this. So I, uh, I don't have a lot of experiential wisdom in dealing with the ways that different churches work or the different ways that they operate or the different ways that they function. 
but there is a common thread in things that I've read and things that I have experienced. It's that people are weird. They're just weird. I mean, even your most socially um, mature and adept person who can carry on a conversation with confidence and ease with somebody else, people are weird. We have preferences that we hold on to so close to our heart, we think they are ingrained into everyone else. People are strange. And really, when you think about the church, it's strange. That weird people could come together and set aside everything that is in their life and to realize that they're called to something greater. I'm not talking about a purpose-driven life. I'm talking about a life that is completely fueled by our identity in Christ. That we see ourselves as not just a member of God's holy work, not just a part of the workmanship that has created the manifold wisdom of God, but that we see ourselves as brothers and sisters with a familial responsibility to one another. I've seen churches be incredibly effective in sharing the gospel in their communities, and I've seen churches that have been not so effective. I've seen churches call people from the darkest place in their lives and welcome them with open arms. And I've seen churches turn their nose up at those who are in that low place. I've heard horror stories about churches who pray that the world would come to know God and turn people away for not adhering to dress codes. And you know what it all comes down to? A group of people that failed to realize that God's plan is bigger than them. A group of people who aren't supposed to be perfect, who don't need to be perfect to fulfill God's will, but they do need to surrender. The struggle in church assimilation, that is the process of bringing people into the church and connecting them with community and, and making them know the love of God through the love of others. After all, this is our church and church's mission statement, is, isn't it? That we would point people to God first and then we would pull people together. That we would foster community. That we would create this dynamic that's prescribed and defined by Scripture, not by what we think it should look like, but what the world thinks that it should look like, but what God actually tells us it should look like. First, we have to push people out of their comfort zone, and we have to say, to identify with Christ, you have to admit that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You have to believe that Christ died on the cross for you and for the sins of the whole world. Okay, and once that hurdle's passed, we come and, and we, we proclaim to the rest of the community and we say, look, I've been saved in this new creation that I am and everything that's happened to me. I've been pushed out of my comfort zone. I've surrendered my life to Christ. 
that next assimilation step is even harder. Because we have to tell people, okay, now that you're a member of this new community in Christ, not only do you have an obligation to the church, not only does the church have an obligation to you, and it's going to be uncomfortable sometimes, but the next step in growing, the next step in maturing, is another surrender in identifying with the local body. The invitation this morning is really easy. I don't want you just to see yourself as a Christian that's come to church this morning to worship in your seat. But I want you to hear yourself as a congregation who is joined together in common unity in Christ to sing praises of God. We'll have a song of invitation. And I invite you to respond however God would lead you. Whether in your seat or if you want to come and pray with somebody or if you just want to listen to the voices around you. My encouragement is the same as Paul's. To see yourself as more than an individual. Would you pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning, for the time that you've given us to come together. God, thank you for calling us not just as individuals, but as a community. Lord, I pray that we would glorify you this morning. God, I pray that as you hear our voices be lifted up to you, that you would be pleased with us. God, I pray that you would encourage us to come to know you through a life with others to take down the barriers that we've put up, the privacy hedges that we've created, and to invite others into our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.